0: Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter.
1: Not afraid. And I think that's the main thing. I think when you think you can't get to the color you need, then the fear wins, right? But I may struggle to get to the color I need. I may have to go, no, that didn't work. And after it dries, I don't like it now. And, you know, I mean, all kinds of things might happen, but I'm not afraid anymore because I know eventually I can figure this
0: out. Hello, and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show where we talk with your favorite artists about how to get better at painting. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. Today is part two of my two part conversation with acrylic and oil painter Debbie Miller. In today's episode, discover Miller's goals for color, why a learner's mindset is so important in getting better at painting, and how the artist finally made peace with her trickiest color, yellow. If you missed part one or want to get show notes, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 15. While you're there, add your name to the newsletter list and get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. Here we go. Let's jump into color a little bit. First off, what is the mood you want in your work? I think of
1: myself as colorful and joyful and Maybe a little bit of whimsy here and there, a little bit of wonkiness. I tend to pick colors slightly on the brighter, more saturated side, maybe in the mid value range, but more saturated. And I think they're happy colors. <laughs> I don't know. If, I do really love grays, but I, I love them in contrast to the happy, brighter, more vibrant colors as well. So,
0: what are the biggest challenges you see your students facing with color?
1: For most of them, it's color mixing, because I think color mixing really is something that there is no substitute for practice. Like, you're just not going to be good at it the first time you try, no matter what, because it's every brand of paint, the colors mix differently. Every grade of paint, the colors mix differently. So there's not like you can tell somebody a specific formula and it's always going to work because it's not. And it's both art and science, right? And I think people in general don't know the color wheel I mean they know of the color wheel but they can't visualize it so when you say complementary colors they theoretically might know what that is but they kind of look at you with their head cocked sideways going uh what is that exactly and so those are things that you'll just practice is what makes you better at it and so I think people get frustrated because they're not already good and because it takes them longer to figure out how to to get a color they want or how to get it again if they didn't make enough of it and they need more later in the painting or if it dries up and then they want to go back to it. So I think those are all things that can be really discouraging for people. In our classes, we try to ask people, to encourage them to do a color mixing chart and to do value charts for each of the colors that they struggle with working through so that they can practice mixing it but they feel like that's wasting their time. They don't feel like that's painting. Like it doesn't feel like it counts. But to me, color mixing is painting. It's a huge part of the painting. So I'm a missionary for this. I try to, I'm always evangelizing, but I haven't converted very many people.
0: So... What's that color chart look like problems with blues, for example, that was like a challenge color. What, what would you suggest they do to figure that out? First of all, the main thing
1: is since we work with this limited palette, I try to get them to see how all the colors mix, you know, like what happens when you mix a lizard and crimson with raw umber and see what that is. Listen, if you have that chart, when you need a color, you can start Like point, I want something in this family and then you see what it's made up of and it's just the beginning, right? It's a hint. And when I first was learning color mixing, I went to my chart all the time. Now I know, right? I have muscle memory or visual memory about how to get to a color, but until I did, that was a really helpful tool. And then I would say to somebody, if you're struggling with blues, take the two blues that we work with and mix a value study from the darkest dark to the lightest light. And make notes to yourself about what you did to move it from one thing to another and see what happens then if you try darkening it with brown or try darkening it with a complementary color or try darkening it with black. And just see, just experiment and say, this is when I'm mixing with browns. This is when I'm mixing with black. This is what I'm mixing with white. And just keep these value charts. And they said, and you're going to get more familiar and then it won't be so scary because you'll realize, well, all it is is you know, like it's, I, I can do it. I can do it. It will not defeat me. But it takes time, but it's time you can spend, you don't have to be in front of the easel to do it. Like I spent a lot of time when I was first learning to paint while we were watching TV, I would be doing a value study of yellow say, you know, okay, I'm going to just play with this. And sometimes I would work with gouache or something or or watercolor. I know it was different than the way my acrylics would mix, but it would just help me figure out, oh, let me just practice. Let me just see what happens if you, when you mix red and green. Oh yeah, that pretty much does turn to brown. (laughs) It was just a commitment to living into color theory. What was one of the colors that gave you the biggest challenge? Yellow. Yeah, getting various shades of darker yellow. Well, to have yellow, like like a sunflower yellow, and then to have it in the shadow and try to figure out, but it's bright yellow, but it's in the shadow, but it's bright yellow. Like I, it was so confusing to me, the whole thing about value and color, bringing those two things together, like value in a gray study, I understood. But when it came into color and trying to get darker shades of different colors, sometimes it just would flummox me. So yellow was my nemesis for quite a while. finally feel like i've mastered her (laughs) what do you do with yellow in a shadow in the shadow. I work usually with a little bit of purple. I'll mix it in there to get to the brown tone. So I'll either put magenta or dioxazine purple in to start. And if that doesn't work, I might pull a little bit of raw umber in. And what I mostly do is I make a goldenrod color at the beginning of every painting session. That's raw umber, cadmium orange, and cadmium yellow with white. And then that's a really good starting point for any of the darker yellows that I might want to get. So just a, my starting point. It's also the start a good starting point for any cream colors too. So just a little bit of that mixed in with white can get me into all kinds of ivories. So I just found that
0: as a little formula that worked for me and I make a big pile of it and it's always there. So that actually leads to two other questions. So could you walk us through what your limited palette is? And then also how do you prep your palette before you start painting?
1: Well, I work with a stay wet palette, Masterson brand stay wet palette. So it has a a sponge that I moisten and then it has semi-permeable palette paper. It's a special palette paper that comes with this palette. And so just a little bit of the moisture from the sponge ends up coming up through the paper. So my piles of acrylic, they'll stay wet They'll mold, actually, before they dry up on that palette. So I use alizarin crimson and quidacridone red, so a warm and a cool red. I use thalo blue and ultramarine for my warm and cool blue. I use cadmium yellow light and cadmium yellow medium for a warm and a cool yellow. And then I mix a custom black with alizarin, thalo and yellow, typically, and white. So those are the absolute basics. And then I've added in raw umber cadmium orange, quid magenta, and dioxazine purple. Oh, and also neutral. I I use a neutral gray because those are colors I could mix up, but it takes a lot of time to get them mixed up and it just wasn't worth it to me. So I have those little extras in my palette. And so I set them up the same way every time. I do put a little bit of golden acrylic retarder in as I'm setting the palette up just so it gives it a little bit longer lead time, but I don't think I would absolutely have to do that but I do. And then if I have mixed up a color, I use a, a metal butcher uh, tray for my color mixing. And if I've mixed up a, a large pile of a color that I really like or that I think I might want to use later in the painting if I have to walk away for a bit, I'll just put it back on the Stay Wet palette and then it'll keep for me in there.
0: So you actually, you really use that Stay Wet palette is like that is where the colors live and then you bring them over to the yeah. butcher's tray. Yeah, so then in that Stay Wet palette, that would be where you would mix some of your your workhorse colors, like that yellow.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I mix them in my butcher tray, but then I'll put them back to store because the Stay Wet palette for me is sort of like the source load, you know? <laughs> I don't want to do too much mixing there because I want those to be pretty much my more or less pristine colors. I mean, they do get dirty because my brush is dirty as I'm digging into it and I'm not super careful about that but that doesn't bother me some people freak out you know some people would always use a clean palette knife to get things out of their source colors but I'm in a hurry so it sometimes gets messy
0: (laughs) so you mentioned that grid of colors is that something literally like if someone would take their colors and and really do like you mix the yellow with the red and then you mix the yellow with the other red and then you mix the yellow with the blue and then you mix the yellow with the other blue and do that grid Yep. yep it's a color chart And I'm a big
1: advocate for it because, first of all, it's time-consuming to do. It is. And it's kind of a little boring. But at the end, it's just so helpful because there were certain things I had no idea. I found out that my favorite spring green is neutral gray and cadmium yellow light. I would never have thought to do that. To me, it's such a pretty spring green, and if I hadn't been playing around, like, I, I wouldn't naturally have ever just gravitated to that color combination as a thought to get green. I would have thought that the gray would have just sort of neutralized the yellow, but obviously it's got blue in it. It also, oddly, cadmium orange and phthalo blue, they make a really swampy looking green when you mix them together, but if you add white into that, you get robin's egg blue. It's crazy, but I wouldn't have discovered it if I hadn't been willing to play with the color chart and keep saying, what happens if I do this? What happens if I do that? It was a discipline. I felt like I really wanted to master this thing. I didn't want not knowing how to mix a color to hold me back.
0: And listening to you talk, I never thought about how When you do a color chart, you're practicing the color in isolation, which allows you to pay attention to what is happening in isolation, because if you take that color and put it in a painting, it may look totally different, Yes. and then you're having to work through that variable when you're problem-solving, but if you just know it... It's kind of like
1: getting the ABCs down, right? You still have to figure out how to write a good sentence, but you've mastered, like, I'm not afraid of this word. I can put these letters together and make a word, and then the painting is the sentence or the paragraph, right? Or the poem. So if they do influence each other, but I'm not afraid. And I think that's the main thing. I think when you think you can't get to the color you need, then the fear wins, right? But I may struggle to get to the color I need. And I may have to go, no, nah, that didn't work. And after it dries, I don't like it now. And, you know, I mean, all kinds of things might happen, but I'm not afraid anymore because I know
0: eventually I can figure this out. Then do you generally paint the color you see in the reference photo? I, well, I do,
1: no, (laughs) no, I don't. I was going to say yes, but that's not true. I sometimes do, but I often will decide to paint the color I have instead of the color that it is. Sometimes I'll get really committed. Like I'll be looking at a uh, Gerbera Daisy, let's say that's hot pink and it's really on the pink side but I might have mixed up something that's more magenta color, but I really love it. And now I'm so committed to it. So I might just decide that that Gerber Daisy is no longer hot pink. It's now more you know, Cerise or something, you know. That doesn't bother me. But I know that there are other painters who... Are more committed to the idea of working to capture what's actually there. And there are times when I do do that just as a discipline to help myself get better at seeing and having more control over my color. But in my daily paintings, I just, I want it to be fun. And sometimes that means I make an editorial decision that, well, that flower is actually white, but it's too hard to get the different variations in white today. Don't have the energy for that. So I think maybe yellow is better today. So I get to play God in my
0: paintings a little bit, you know? But it also sounds like you try to create a mental space for those daily paintings that's not I don't want to say not serious because you're a serious painter, but give it the seriousness it deserves. But and let it be fun where it can be fun. And
1: that's okay. Absolutely. I mean, to me, this is, I'm not a photorealist. I'm not, I'm Not. I don't have the skill to do that. But I also don't want to do that. Like for me, this is a conversation with the materials, with the subject matter I'm painting and with my own heart. And so there's a dance going on and I get to be responsive to what I see but then I also have to be responsive to what's happening on in the painting as it's developing and how I'm feeling about it. And if I get to the end of something and I go, oh, I don't like that background color. I don't care what it actually is. I don't like the way it looks. Well, I get to change that because otherwise I'm not going to like my painting. You know? So, yeah, I'm trying to maintain some fun. I'm trying to maintain some um, playfulness and also to not, I, I am a serious painter, but I also don't want to take myself too seriously, like both and. I want to be free to say, well, you know, this is what it was today.
0: Do you think the daily painting gives a freedom in that way, that it's not the painting of the month, that there is, uh oh, that one, yeah, that one went sideways, but that's okay because I'll be back tomorrow. Absolutely,
1: absolutely, absolutely. I think that was one of the most significant things about daily painting for me is that because I had to stop whenever I had to stop and I gave myself the challenge, especially the first few months to never go back and fiddling with a painting that yesterday's painting is yesterday's painting and I'm not going back to it. Now I sometimes will let something be a two day painting if I want it to be. But at the time it was so important for me to do that because I had to release it. I had to release it to be what it was for that day, to be good enough. And it was the best thing for helping me get over my perfectionism because the idea is, what does being good enough mean? It means that I showed up today with what I had available today. And, you know, today I could not make this rose work. Yesterday I made a rose and it looked really nice. Today, this rose was not happening. Well, that's okay. It was good enough. I showed up and that was my goal. I showed up and I did my best. And at the end of the day, I learned something. I learned that When you're really, really tired and you, you know, the third shot at the rose, maybe it's time just to walk away, right? You know, sometimes that's what you learn. Lisa Daria Kennedy, bless her, she works on Masonite panels. She said, oh yeah, about every 20th panel is cursed. And it just doesn't matter what you do, it will not make a nice painting. (laughs) And I was like, oh, at that point when she taught me, she'd been doing it for like seven years or something, you know, and every single day consecutively, never missed a day in in all that time. And if she was having every 20th panel be cursed, then when I had a cursed panel that would not make a painting work, I was like, oh, well, it was just a cursed panel. So that was a good, good gift that she gave. But it's, it's such a good thing to be able to say, this
0: one's done and tomorrow's a new day sometimes we as painters set the bar too high or maybe set it at the wrong place for like our goals for a painting or being painters or everything around
1: that. Oh, I think so. I think sometimes we won't let ourselves be learners. We're supposed to already be good at something as soon as we sit down and try. And I think that's hard for everyone, not just painters, but I think in particular, if you're a visual artist, I think there's a, probably a lot of temptation to comparison because you're looking at other people's artwork. You're looking at what they can accomplish and you want to, maybe for me, it was like, I'd see something and I'd want to be able to do that style. I'd, you know, and and I would think, I think I could do that, but of course I haven't done it, you know, and I don't know how to do it, but I, I want to do it, but I would feel so defeated at first by not being able to do it. Then I would have to remind myself, well, why would I know how to do this? I'm new. I'm a beginner. And it's okay to be in the learning phase. And it's okay to not know. And it's okay to mess it up. And I think actually... When you start to get a little bit of success and you start to feel like you've mastered some things, it's actually harder then to go back and let yourself be a learner because you think, well, I should be better than this, right? So in some ways, it's easier when you're a dead beginner. But when I was moving to oil, it was hard to go back to the not knowing phase Again, to the really not knowing, I don't know how the colors mix. They're the exact same color names, but they don't behave the same, you know? And so that was hard to say, but it was humbling and it was probably really good for me. And it taught me that I should probably try something really out of my comfort zone at least once a year to remind myself that what it's like to just have the
0: freedom to be in the unknowing phase of the process. Well, also that inner critic, when she shows up and she's so obviously like a critic, she has the fancy glasses on and the beret or whatever she wears when she's like being a super critic, holding a cigar. I don't know why. (laughs) Like, then I can just be like, listen, lady, you stay over there. But when she shows up in ways like you mixed this color perfectly yesterday, what's wrong with you today? It's those smaller ways that feel like the death by a thousand cuts that can feel really confusing, especially if you have some experience under your belt. You think I should be past this. What's wrong with me? How did you learn to overcome that? First, like maybe recognize what's happening, but then also push through that.
1: I think it really was helpful because we had a friend that started painting with us at the same time. And Brian was an experienced painter. And so, you know, we felt like he was already the king of the hill. And so if it was easy for him, well, whatever, because he went to art school, you know, it was like that, you know, gave him a pass for already being great. It made sense. Right. But, for, but she and I were both dead beginners. And so it was good to hear her expressing her fears and, and me expressing my fears that so we realize that oh I'm not the only one that feels this way and then it turns out that Brian would be feeling some of that too so just talking about it openly and having people that you can dialogue with about it and not to have to hide it and just think that you're the only person in the world that's experiencing this that was really helpful so like you asking this question and other people listening to this podcast it was like oh yeah that's true the inner critic says you should have you did this yesterday and you can't do it today that's exactly the way it works right so just discouraging, so shame inducing. It is tricky and sneaky that way. And so I, I realized the kind of critic I am. And this is it was an interesting conversation that I was having with somebody one day. I said, when you look at your own artwork, do you see what's wrong first or what you like first? And this person that I was asking said that they saw what they liked first. Well that just I mean, I thought they were lying. You know <laughs> <laughs> then they said, no, no. He said, when I look at other people's art, I always see what I don't like first, what I think is wrong. But when I look at my artwork, I always see what I think is right. I was like, really? Like that, that was so interesting to me because it was exactly the opposite for me. If when I look at my own artwork, the first thing I see is what's wrong. you know. And when I want critique, when I ask Brian to come over and give me some feedback, I always say, what's wrong with this? I don't say what's right with this or what do you think is working or what you you know i want him to like let's just go for it let's get it done let's find out what's wrong and fix it i realize the kind of critic i am is i'm looking at my own artwork with a propensity to see what's wrong and so when i'm in the evaluative phase when i'm stepping back to take a look i have to stop myself and go look for what's right first look for what you like first look for what's working celebrate what is going well and then look for what you think might need some help or you're confused about or you're uncertain about. I've had to teach myself to be a nicer critic to myself. I've had to train myself as an evaluator of my own work. Because I think it is important for us to evaluate our stuff, right? To be able to be critical, to be able to see what's wrong. But if I only see what's wrong, then that's not a fair or just evaluation. I need to be able to hold both. But I've had to work on it because my natural tendency is to go to the negative. There's sometimes I do feel like, oh, let me tell myself something I like about my painting. Okay. You know, but over time, I'm actually getting better at looking at my painting. And go, Okay, well, that color is great. I love that color right there. I don't know if I, how I feel about this, but, you know, th- so there's just been a, just a gentle switch toward kindness.
0: Well, and do you think the kindness allows you to be a better
1: learner? I think so, because I think if you have to already know and if it's dangerous, like if I turn on myself when I'm not good at something and then I make it unsafe for me to be a learner. Right? And so it means I'm going to limit myself to only doing what I already know how to do. And that doesn't even work because sometimes when you do know how to do it, it still doesn't come out because <laughs> of that cursed panel concept, you know? So I think it, yeah, I think it really can keep you stalled and it can be really damaging unless you can find a way to be kind, at least some of the time.
0: As you've developed as an artist and grown a following As being an artist, has have you struggled with keeping that learner's mentality as more people look to you as someone who already knows what she's doing?
1: No, because nothing could surprise me more than the fact that people are looking to me as someone that already knows what she's doing. It never ceases to amaze me. I want to make sure I want to always say, but you know, I'm not that good, right? I'm just still learning. I'm just just always amazes me that um, that I have anything to share or teach but but I, th- I think I do I mean don't get me wrong I mean I, I, I do think I have things to share and teach but it still shocks me that that's true because this is so I think that's one of the benefits of being a late bloomer is that like it's st- every single time that I do something well I'm like
0: really this is so cool who thought I could do this it just doesn't get old you know but thinking about the work that you do still lives and let's look at let's focus on the flowers. What are the challenges of painting flowers?
1: The challenges I think of painting flowers is that on the one hand, there's a lot of variety, so it can make a mistake in lots of different shapes, and it still can look more or less like the flower, and so that you can get away with it. On the other hand, people really know what roses look like, you know. <laughs> so so There's only so far you can go off topic and get away with it. So I think there's that. The other thing I think is hard is for me, because I have to paint more quickly, there are a lot of details in flowers that you can get lost in that I sometimes want to get lost in. Like I really want to get all that, oh, look at that really cool variation in that petal shape. And oh, I really want to get, look at all those little dots in there, you know, but I have to make editorial decisions just to be able to keep my paintings done more quickly. And so I think that can be a challenge to communicate the flower with less information instead of more when I can get seduced by the information in the flower. So I think that's one of the, the temptations.
0: So how have you learned to simplify? Because I think that's what you're saying is simplifying both how have you learned to simplify the references that you set up, but then also how much information you choose to give within an individual bouquet. I don't know that I could tell you exactly
1: how I did it, but I just knew it had to happen. I will go back and look at, like, Lisa Daria, if you go back and look through her blog posts or her online gallery, and you look at her paintings, like, in the first two or three years, she had a lot more detail in her flowers. And now... 10 years into her daily painting practice, it's like a couple slashes of color. And oh my gosh, that's a violet because she knows her flowers. And so she can, with a few strokes, really communicate their shape. You know, she's got increasingly abstract as time has gone on. And so I've learned a lot from that. And I will often go back and just look at Lisa Daria's work and like, oh, she got that sunflower. The whole right side of that sunflower is just one L-shaped stroke. And so then the, then I'll try that and see, how does that work? And I say, well, that's, I don't think I can quite get away with that, but I could do that L-shaped stroke and then maybe just one or two little spokes coming out as the petals, you know? And so it's just a matter of playing and simplifying and trying things and seeing what works and just sort of playing around and discovering, well, how can I communicate this with the least amount of, of strokes? Sometimes I'll give myself a stroke challenge, like I'll say, you paint this painting in 30 strokes or less, or you paint this painting in 50 strokes or less, you know? So like, I'll just try things like that because it'll, in doing that, it lets me discover things that I wouldn't naturally do that can help me get that
0: simplification and abstraction going. Do you ever spend time working on a particular flower, like saying like, okay, roses, I'm going to figure you out. Oh yeah. I did that with roses.
1: <laughs> yeah. Rose, roses and I went on a long journey and We still don't necessarily have, we still have not necessarily made peace, but but I do feel like I have a way, I have a way that I can paint a rose. It may or may not be the actual rose that I'm looking at but I have discovered a way to paint something that looks like a rose when I'm really trying to capture the rose that's actually in front of me, we might be on for a rockier road because they refuse to behave (laughs) real flowers. They don't always do what you want them to do. (laughs) So, um, but uh, yeah, roses were ones that I really wanted to master. My middle name is Rose. And so I, you know, I've always loved roses. I really, really felt like it was important for me to, to work on it. So I spent, Months sketching roses, practicing roses, not just in my paintings, but just on the side too, right? To learn. Yeah, I will definitely do that. And snapdragons were the other thing that I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how did I want to paint these because I love them so much. And I just really wanted to figure out how do I get it? How do I get it?
0: So, some of that when you're approaching an individual flower, how do you think through them in light and dark and like the highlight versus the shadow side? And how then When you're in the paint, do you handle those pieces?
1: Sometimes I will actually, as I'm setting my compositions up, I'll be really thinking about, is this the flower that can handle being in the shadow? Am I going to like painting this in the shadow because I know the colors that I'm going to have to mix to get that shadow version of that color. Do I like that color enough to have it be a star or not? So I really, I will think about it even in the, composition phase, you know, when I'm setting my still lifes up. But the main thing is just the mixing the colors right so that they get those value differences. And if I can do that, then I feel like I can kind of pull it off in the painting itself. Whether or not I like the results or not is another thing, but at least I know where I'm going as long as I can get those value differences in the way I mix the colors.
0: Actually, do you have a focal point when you're painting?
1: Yeah, I usually try to have decide which flower is going to be the star or what where I want people's eyes to go first. And so oftentimes if, if there's a sunflower in a bouquet, that often is it because it's the biggest, showiest kind of flower. So that may be the, the thing that kind of grabs the attention. But sometimes it's hydrangeas
0: because I love them too. <laughs> so when let's say you're approaching the hydrangea or the, the sunflower, let's just use sunflower for this example. Would you mix all the colors for that flower before you started painting that flower and then you attack that flower and more or less finish that flower and then move on? Probably not finish it, but I would find other
1: places to put that color in the composition, one or more of those colors, because I try to get some color harmony and usually there's some reflected color somewhere else you know either in the water of the vase or somewhere so I'm once I get that working with that color I'll probably move all around the composition for any place else that color needs to be and then move on
0: okay but then you sort of work one flower at a time one color sort of at a time yeah. I mean,
1: I mean, maybe not always. It's hard to say because sometimes I get, you know, like I might start a sunflower and I'm just so charmed by it that I just finished that because I'm having so much fun and, you know, it's completely captivated me and I can't move on. And other times I'll get around to all the other yellows and then come back to the sunflower. And sometimes I'll do all the dark centers of the flowers first because I'm really loving the color I mixed up for that purpley, brown, greenish color, whatever, whatever it is that I'm doing. So color usually seduces me and sort of invites me to how I approach my process more than the objects do. I think I get more directed by the color than the objects themselves, especially in a floral bouquet.
0: What is important about shadows? Is it realism? Is it the fact that there's just some shift? What are you trying to do there to have a little bit of sense of light and dark?
1: I think it really depends. Like sometimes the shadow is actually a really important character in the composition for me. I did some chair paintings recently where the shadows that I was doing from them were as interesting to me, if not more so than the chairs themselves. And they had had a lot of personality and they really were players. It could have been that they were just nothing but something to create a sense of realism, but they captured my interest. And sometimes if I'll have a spriggier flower and it's cast a really interesting shadow on the back wall, as well as on the tabletop, then I'll want that to really be part of my composition. Other times it might be doing exactly the same thing and I ignore the back wall shadow altogether and only focus on the cast shadow on the table surface. So it really just depends on what My mood is, I think, that day where I put my attention. Mostly I want, I'm probably just going to do a little bit of value shift unless the shadow is a high drama piece of the painting. But that
0: shadow is in the reference photo. You're not making it up on the fly. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. Oh, shadows. (sighs) Yes.
1: (laughs) I don't understand shadows enough to make one up well. The very basic way, if the light's coming from the right, there's going to be a cast shadow on the left. I can get that. But my husband really understands the way light would bounce. Like he in art school, that was one of the things they spent a lot of time on. And so he gets how the light's going to bounce up off the surface and how it's going to look on the other side. You know, he's just got the form shadow and the cast shadow and all the different elements of it. He really sort of just knows that intuitively. And so he could probably make up a shadow and it would look realistic. I could not. That's why it has to be in the reference photo or I'm lost because I really am not going to be able to make up
0: something realistic. Well, then another element of your work is pattern. What challenges do you see people running into with pattern?
1: First of all, being brave to just try pattern and to try mixes of patterns and to not be held back I think people get a little scared because they're afraid it's going to be too busy or it's going to be too complicated I know for myself one of the things that held me back from pattern was I wasn't afraid I wouldn't be able to, to duplicate a shape you know if I was trying to create a repeating pattern I didn't have the confidence to think that I could make it look consistent so I often will use stencils I won't stencil through the stencil, but I'll use a stencil to sh- to trace the shape and then paint that shape from the stencil because... It's still organically made, but then I'm not stuck with my drawing skill, you know. So it's just a tool that helps me. And I encourage people to try anything, stamping, whatever they can to bring their worlds together. So I didn't have to give up everything I loved about mixed media to become a fine art painter. I can still use some of these tools. I make my own stamps. And I try to encourage other people to have the courage to do that, too,
0: and let their patterns be wonky and not worry about it and let it be fun and playful for you when you're you're having trying to create a sense of depth in your work how do you deal with patterns and keeping it everything from just being flat i will try to
1: create a sense of depth Like I just finished a painting where I had a harlequin pattern on the tabletop. I had a reference photo. So in the back of the painting, the diamond shapes were smaller and there was like 12 of them in that back row and there were six diamond shapes in the front row. So obviously something has to happen between those two. So I ridded it out. So I made the shapes got more elongated and flattened out and smaller in the back and they were larger and more fully shaped as the diamond pattern in the front but I had to measure it, use a ruler and I know some people think rulers should not you know you should just be able to eyeball it but I can't I need I needed the ruler but I really was happy with the way it turned out. You know when I painted through the lines that my lines aren't perfect it's it's still got my Debbie impressionistic sort of flair to it. But it is realistic in terms of the proportions and the dimensionality. So it's creating that sense of the way it actually is in space. Sometimes I don't do that. Sometimes I let the things be flatter and almost more matisse you know, like where things could look like they could fall right off the table. And I might mix that with other things that are more dimensional because I feel like if Matisse could do it, why can't I, you know? Well, I mean, obviously I'm not Matisse, but you know, <laughs> but I still feel like
0: I could borrow some of his techniques. So, Listening to you talk makes me realize that we have this idea that we should just be able to create things out of thin air in our head, and then we get frustrated when we don't understand how the Harlequin pattern works because it's complicated. And a reference photo... Gives you sort of permission to not know, but then use your tools to figure it out. So, like, you're not just getting mad at yourself that you don't know. You're using your tools to figure it out. Exactly, and
1: that's really helpful to me to say, yeah, this is this is geometry right here, you know. And hello, I haven't taken geometry since middle school, so chances are I'm gonna have to work it out, you know. <laughs> like, it's just, you know, I'm gonna have. To... And it was frustrating, you know. I had to really like, oh, where does this line? Oh, that. Could... <laughs> But in the end, it was really fun. And so I was proud of myself. But I I feel apologetic about using all the tools I use, like my grids and my rulers and my stencils, because I feel like, you know, real artists maybe shouldn't need them, quote unquote, real artists. But that's what I need to make my artistry work. And so that makes it legitimate.
0: Well, and also um, that it can be so easy to say, well, I can't figure that out. I guess I just won't be a painter. And I feel like It's a different kind of bravery to say, like, I don't know how to do that. Well, let me figure it out. I'm a painter. And those are such one, a person has given themselves permission to be a learner. And the other one, someone has not given themselves permission to be a learner. Yes. Yes. I don't know if you know
1: who Brene Brown is, but she's a social science researcher from the University of Houston and podcaster and TED talker and various things. But I'm trained as a facilitator of her work. And one of the things that she always encourages people to do is when you're trying to be brave about something, when you're trying to step into the arena and every new painting is a stepping into the arena moment, right? Because you don't know how to do this painting, no matter what you did yesterday. This is a new experience. She says, when you're stepping into the arena and you need to remind yourself that this is brave, this is challenging. Write yourself a permission slip. Like I have permission to be a learner today. I have permission to not know what I'm doing. I have permission to be goofy today and have fun no matter what the outcome is. The first couple months that I was doing this, I was writing permission slips on stickies and putting them over my easel all the time. I have permission to not know what to do with dark to make a dark yellow. <laughs> it's okay, you know? And so it was just to remind myself, well, yeah, this this is brave. You know what? That that blank canvas is brave. It is scary to risk doing something that you love. It really is. Every time it's scary and it's brave every time. Even if you're not afraid, it's still brave, right? Because you're taking a risk and you don't know how it's going to come out and you don't know how people are going to respond to it and you don't know what's going to happen. So yeah, it's risky and so worth it. But sometimes we need the permission slip is just another tool that helped me.
0: So if someone came to you and said, I want to get really good at painting, what advice would you give them? Paint a
1: lot. Paint a lot. I read this book called Art and Fear years ago, and there was a section there about a guy that taught a ceramics class. And one of the classes, he said, you've got all semester to work on one pot and just make it as perfect as you can. And the other class, he said, You're going to be graded on the number of pots you complete. So make as many as you can. I don't care what they look like. I just, it's all quantity. And without fail, the worst pot in the quantity class was better than the best pot in the only one class so that really impressed me that made a big dent in my head and the other thing is is I had heard various people say when we first started painting that if you paint a thousand paintings it's the equivalent of mastery that you'll master your style you'll discover your style if so if I did the math and if I painted once a month to get to a thousand paintings it was going to take 83 years I was 58 when I started did not have time to do once a month painting if I did once a week it was going to take like 20 some years but once a day less than three years to get to the thousand (laughs) pieces. so that sold me because I knew I wanted it's not that I wanted to say I was a master but I knew that I wanted to do what it was going to take to help me feel more confident to help me feel like I had mastered the tools at least be able to know that I could mix a certain color or to not be afraid to not be afraid to try So to me, that's what master meant. Not that I considered myself having achieved everything. Because if painting wasn't always a learning experience, I think it would be terribly boring. One of the things I love about it is that I can never know enough. I can never know everything. Like there's always going to be something new to know. And that's fun to me, you know, so that's exciting. But I wanted to commit to the thousand paintings to at least say, like, I have confidence now. And so I didn't have time to wait the 83 years, so... So I would say paint a lot. And then my friend, Lynn Whipple, who's a local artist here in Orlando, she's amazing. And she says, paint a hundred bad paintings. And so there's just such freedom in that, right? Like, so if I get up one day and I paint, this painting is crap. I go, oh good. I just painted another one of my hundred bad paintings. Yes, I did it. I achieved my objective. One less down, I have to go. So I think there's such freedom in those kinds of invitations, right? And I think there really isn't any substitute for practice. I don't, I mean, I don't know how to get better if you don't do it. You can't become a better painter in your head. You can only be a better painter with a paintbrush in your
0: hand. Talking about these fears and sort of excuses that sometimes we give ourselves, it can be pretty overwhelming, the idea that I am starting too late. And I think... A lot of people don't start. And that people can have that thought at 20, at 30, at 40, at 50, at 60. It is pervasive. What do you say? to
1: that? First of all, that used to be the thing that dogged me the most in my life, the fear that I had gotten too much of a late start in everything. The fear that I was going to run out of time to become my best self somehow, that just was always tormented me. But painting is the thing that really taught me that that's not true. Like, I mean, I can see, I can see that I am so much better and I got a really late start and it doesn't seem to matter. And it actually, in some ways, I don't know that I could be the kind of painter I am now if I'd started I mean, I wish I'd started when I was younger because there was so much more time to learn all the stuff, but I've learned so much just about living and about perfectionism and about self-kindness and about grace and truth and beauty and things like that over just from being older, you know, that there's no substitute for that either, right? So there's a Mary Oliver poem that I wish I could remember the name of it. But there's a line in it that says that essentially instead of it's not like it's not too late, it was like it's it's time enough. It's just the right time. And I feel like that whenever you decide to get started in something like this, it's just the right time. If today is the day you're getting started, then this is the day it was meant to happen. So just let yourself embrace it like it's just time enough instead of not enough.
0: Yeah, it's like refusing to live in the scarcity of I don't have enough time. How important is finding a community, do you think, when you're a painter? I've really valued, been, been blessed by being
1: a part of a community. Of artists, like I'm pretty committed to posting on Instagram, just because there's such a large artistic community there. Wherever your artistic community is, I think there's so much value in being willing to look at other people's art, offer them encouragement, and and receive the encouragement that people want to offer you. Like I think that that's really helped me. It's really built helped me build my practice. It's helped me build confidence. It's helped me build relationships. I mean, I feel like I have relationships all around the world because I've risked putting my art out. there for people to look at and you know I've had some negative stuff that came but mostly 99.9% of the feedback I've gotten has been positive and encouraging and it's made me want to be more of an encourager to other creatives as well and I think that's there's something really beautiful and powerful about that kind of synergy and so I encourage people who want to get started in art to really find a way to get a community of people that are like-minded that are generous that will let you be a learner with them and let them be a learner with you.
0: You can find more about Debbie Miller, including workshops at they and on Facebook and Instagram. We'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Kelly. It's really been an honor. I really, really
0: appreciate it. Thanks for joining us this week on the podcast. Head to learn to slash podcast slash episode 15 for show notes While you're there, add your name to the newsletter list to get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. And if you like the show, consider supporting it by clicking the support button on the episode page. All right, happy painting.